You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Aren't you glad you picked Kingsway today to come to you with this topic? So what we've been doing, for those of you visiting with us today, we're super glad you're here, but we've been studying the book of Luke. And uh, I just noticed as I was writing out the series that over the last four weeks, we had some different subjects that are a little bit controversial, like is it okay to have faith and doubt? Is it okay to drink alcohol or is it not okay to drink alcohol? Uh, what does the Bible say about intimacy? I'll leave it at that for listening years. And then uh, this week, talking about like what is the role of women in church leadership? I went through a series of what I thought would be really funny one-liners to start this message. And then just all of them, when I looked at it, I thought none of those are gonna land. Every single one of those is gonna get me in trouble. And next thing you know, Brett's gonna get all these emails because I tell you to say email bcadwell at kingswaychurch.org. So anyway, we're just going to jump in because we have a lot to cover. This is like Bible study at an in-depth level, but uh, this is a subject that, that the elders spent hours and hours and hours last year studying and just to come to some conclusions. And uh, then I took that and I summarized it down to about a 90-minute presentation to our staff. Now I'm summarizing that down to even less, about 32 minutes or so here with you today. So as you can imagine, there's text we aren't going to get to read and things we aren't going to get to talk about, and I'm just going to ask for a ton of grace. This would be a good message, husbands, to keep your elbows to yourselves and not elbow your wives. Uh, this would be a good time to be very compassionate and loving because we want to take a look at what does God's word say about the role of women as it relates to church leadership. And some of you are like, why this Sunday of all Sundays? Well, I hope by the end you feel encouraged. So let's jump in. Let's jump in. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Here's where it comes from. Ready? After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. Now, the 12 specifically refers to the 12 disciples who would become apostles. I think it was Luke 4, I didn't write this down, where Jesus chose the 12. So he's got a large group of disciples following him, and then he chooses 12 of them. At some point, this group grows to like 120. We see that in the book of Acts, but it's kind of a fluid number. I love the way The Chosen, the TV show, The Chosen shows this. They're kind of following around this group of guys. They're in one general vicinity, so sometimes guys might go home or come back or whatever, but mostly they're following Jesus around. The 12 are all men. That's relevant. We'll get to that in a little bit later today. But not every single person in the group is a man. In fact, verse 2 says this. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So what Luke is now cluing us into in the book of Luke is that Jesus has both male and female disciples. He's got men and women in his group. And some of these women are very popular, well-known. Some are well-known because Jesus healed them like Mary Magdalene. Some of them are well-known because of who their husbands are or the prominence of their families, so to speak. This is, you know, you've got Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and then also Susanna. I don't know who Susanna is. I don't think you know who Susanna is, but everybody back then knew who Susanna was. So Luke felt like he could name drop, like, boom, look, Susanna's in the group. And everybody else goes, oh yeah, Susanna, really? She's among the group? But what we start to learn is that Jesus is turning the concept of leadership on its head. And that's a really important thing for us to anchor to because this was not normal back then. Women, by and large, were to be seen and not to be heard. They were to manage the households while the men did the real work. 
But Jesus is changing that radically because he begins to call women disciples. In fact, let me show you this in another passage. Jesus is sitting in a house, and uh, the way that Jesus' ministry worked is, you know, people had houses. Houses were nowhere near as big as yours. Uh, a home could maybe hold maybe 30 to 40 if they were really wealthy, but maybe 5 to 15 in this kind of seating area down to the front. If, if you've ever been outside of the country, maybe seen a house like this. We just went to Mexico as a church a few weeks ago. That's about what we saw there. Homes that were a little bit wealthier could hold more, and homes that couldn't could hold maybe five or six or so entertained in the front. And uh, Jesus was in there, probably in a wealthy person's home. There's probably 25 or so people in there. And it says his mom and his brothers, this is Mary and his brothers, came to the door. And they called for Jesus to come out and have a private family conversation with them. And Jesus looks at them, Matthew 12, 48. It says, he replied to them, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So it would be really weird if Jesus pointed to a room full of disciples who are all men and said, here is my mother and my sisters. Everybody would go, well, that's weird, Jesus. Now, today they might not feel that way, but in his day, that would have been very weird. Thank you for the one person. Everybody else laughed awkwardly. But in what it tells us is there were women in Jesus' discipleship group. It wasn't just men. And he pointed to his disciples and said, here's my sisters, here's my brothers, here's my mother. In other words, my family is made up of those who love me, want to know me, obey me, serve me. My family is not just my bloodline. My family is bigger than that. Not only that, but <clears throat> we're, we're about to pause the book of Luke. We're going to study leadership and then we're going to study the book of uh, Songs of Solomon, or the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, uh, because I just keep getting so many marriage questions, dating questions, relationship questions, and usually when I find that I'm dealing with a lot of these outside of here, it's like, hey, I think God's doing something among us. We need to stop and look at God's word, and so we're going to study a book and help singles, married, everybody we can in a series through God's word. Then we'll come back to the book of Luke, but when we come back to the book of Luke, We'll keep working through Luke 8, then 9, then 10. In case you didn't know, that's how numbers work. I don't know why I said it that way. Anyway, in Luke 9 and Luke 10, something fascinating happens. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12. That's the men who would later become apostles. Then he sends out the 70 or the 72. We'll unpack all that when we get there. But those are made up of all the other disciples. Almost guaranteed he sent out men and women in that group because that's who is among him. Jesus' promotion of women was radical for his day. And you might not fully know that or appreciate that. Did you know it was only about 100 years ago in America that women could even vote? Like some of you never processed that. Like think about that. Even in America, that's true. But a lot of that came out of actually God's word fighting for the rights of women. And many people reading it, being convicted about what God's word says. And we want to be a people who do our best to live according to God's word. In the first century, when Jesus was walking around, um, women couldn't own property. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is actually by God. If you ever notice, when the land is divvied up, it's divvied up to the sons. If you were a daughter, you got land by marrying somebody else's son. You weren't given authority of an inheritance. 
So much so that somebody called a kinsman redeemer could actually redeem you. If you were a woman in the Old Testament and your husband died, the next nearest male family member of that person was supposed to marry you and bring you in so that you could have a family so that you could be provided for. It actually was a mercy. It was not about men or you know, boys rule and girls drool. It wasn't about that. It was a mercy to provide for and protect women. But play that out over hundreds and thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of years, when you get to the first century, what happened is um, there was a, a, a class where you had men and then you had women. In fact, there's, it said there's a common prayer for some Jewish men in the first century that went like this, praised be God that he has not created me a woman. True story. Now, some of you men woke up today and prayed the same thing. I get it, especially if your wife is pregnant. I was talking to a lady, that joke just totally fell. I was talking to a lady this morning about the particular message, and she said, you know, I can understand, you know, it's hard to be a woman. And I said, with all due respect, it's hard to be a man. Like, like it's not like it's easy to be either one of us, but you get it, right? Like, if I'm a man, I have no idea what it feels like to be a woman. If I'm a woman, I have no idea what it feels like to be a man. In Jesus' day, uh, if you were, again, I want to be clear, there's Rome and Roman culture, and then there's Jews and Jewish culture, and the Jews in the Jewish culture were living inside of Roman captivity. So sometimes what I'm, what I'm explaining to you right now is Jewish culture. There may be differences in Roman culture, and sometimes those two things butted up against each other, which created unique differences. But regardless, in Jewish culture, uh, a man could divorce a woman for almost any reason whatsoever. Literally, one of the famous uh, rabbis of Jesus' day taught that if a woman displeased her husband, he could offer her a writ of divorce. Think about that for a minute. Now, Jesus deals with all that, and we'll talk about all that when we get to those texts in the book of Luke, but a woman could not divorce a man for nearly any reason at all. Jesus tells a story at one point about a judge, uh, an unrighteous judge, and this widow keeps coming to him and coming to him and coming to him because she's been treated unjustly and unfairly, and he doesn't care about her. But finally, because she won't stop coming to him, he finally deals with the problem to make her stop bugging him. But then Jesus' point is, how much more so will your Father in heaven who loves you help you when you need him and you come to him persistently? But again, women were just seen as this annoyance almost, as something that should be seen but not heard. In fact, there's a, a rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, who's a first century teacher, and he said, rather should the word of the Torah, that's the first five books, be burned than entrusted to a woman. Aren't you glad you came to Kingsway today? <laughs> but it's in this culture that Jesus starts to radically treat women differently and to show that women have value and giftedness beyond just their looks or their ability to care for a home. In Jesus' day, uh, the temple was set up, God's temple was set up so that, I want you to imagine the temple extending this way, going out this way, and it's like a rectangle. Here was like a little room, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant and some of the ancient relics that were in there. And only one time a year, a man could go in there. His name was the high priest, or his title was the high priest. And he could go in there one time a year and offer atonement for the sins of the people. Outside there was the holy place. So this is the most holy place, the holy of holies, and then the holy place. And only the male priests could go in there to serve in there. Outside of that was another area where only the Jewish men could come into. And then outside of that was the kind of the public courtyards where Gentiles, which is non-Jews, and women could come into. 
So even the temple was set up so that there was increasing, uh, increasingly more narrow description of who could get into the presence of God. But when Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead and the temple veil tore in two, he was opening this up to change the way that we approach God. This is why, as we talked a few weeks back, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. It'll bust them. You need a whole new box to understand what God is doing in Jesus Christ. But some of what I wanna show you now is that this was not new. When God created Adam and Eve, he created both of them with the intention that both of them would bring the image of God into the world. Things get broken when sin entered the picture. That doesn't mean it was the original design of things. In fact, let me just show you some of, this isn't exhaustive, but some of the ways that God used women throughout the Bible. Take a look, ready? So in the Old Testament, we'll get to the New Testament here and then into the next ones. But in the Old Testament, we have the songs of Miriam and the songs of Deborah, who's a judge. Deborah's a fascinating little case. Highly, highly recommend Tim Keller's book. I think it's called Judges for You. He's got a whole chapter where he does a thing on women in leadership. Deborah, probably herself, not like an MMA fighter kind of tough chick, probably just an amazingly gifted administrator and organizer. And the men of Israel know they need to go to battle, but they don't feel comfortable doing it. And so they go to Deborah and they ask her to lead. And she gives them this warning, like, if you guys do this, all the glory is gonna be taken away from you. And they're like, we don't care, will you lead us? And she ends up leading the charge of the army and they win the battle because of Deborah. But uh, Miriam here, this is Moses' sister, she writes a whole song and the entire nation is commanded to sing that song that she wrote and they're in the scriptures. Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel, Abigail's prophecy in 1 Samuel. We have the inspired utterance of King Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31. You ever heard of a Proverbs 31 woman? I think most of us have never really read it or never really read it clearly because, uh, I, again, after last service, a lot of people had questions and I, I wanna do everything I can to answer as many of those as I possibly can. But I had some people coming up to me and the phrase, the proud boys was used, not in any way towards me or at me, but just there's this anxiety today about, you know, women should be, whatever the phrase is, I'm not gonna use it because I'll offend some ladies, right? They should be in, at home in the kitchen and, and that's where they should be. Well, apparently, if you love your Bible, you never read Proverbs 31 because the Proverbs 31 woman is a hardworking woman. She's got a business outside the home. She's bringing income in for the family. This is what Proverbs 31 says. The whole point is there are a lot of things that the Bible celebrates a woman could do. They are gifted, they are leaders, they are qualified. And we see that in the ways that God uses them in scripture. I didn't even put on this list Esther um, or, or, or Naomi, or we keep going. Anyway, so we get Elizabeth's blessings in Luke, which we covered earlier. We get Mary's Magnificat. This is where she sings the song after Jesus is given to her, and everybody's been reading these texts and celebrating them for years. In the New Testament, we see even further some of the things that Jesus does. For instance, Mary, this is the sister of Martha, she was the first disciple to listen to and recognize that Jesus would be crucified soon and let me tell you real quick, if you've never heard the story, Mary and Martha are sisters. I don't know about you guys, sisters don't always get along. So Mary and Martha have this moment where Jesus is coming over, it's a big deal, other people are coming, Martha's in the kitchen preparing the food for everybody. Mary is being a disciple. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to the teachings of Jesus along with the rest of the disciples. Now, what's happened is Martha's starting to get angry because she's doing all the work and Mary's not helping. And she comes over, she's like, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help me. And Jesus rebukes Martha and says, Mary has chosen the better thing. Mary's sitting at my feet listening 
That would have been radical in and of itself. But then in John chapter 12, similar to the story of last week where I talked about the anointing with the hair, there were four stories I told you. Well, here we see one of them and it's Mary. And she walks in and she's broken over Jesus because she's the one disciple listening and paying attention. She gets it that Jesus is gonna die. Even though he has said it over and over and over again to the male disciples, I know this won't surprise anybody, the female disciples, the one who's listening and paying attention, they don't get it. They do not get it to the point where Peter says, no way, Lord, no way. I will give up my own life. I will not let that happen. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Yeah, you sound like a tough guy, but when it comes, push comes to shove, you're gonna back down. But Mary was listening, and the scriptures celebrate that, signifying that Jesus is doing a new thing. The first person to appear to Jesus after his res- resurrection was Mary Magdalene. That was a really big deal because women in the first century were considered, their testimony was considered invalid. It couldn't be trusted. If you went to court, a woman could not come in and testify for or against you. They weren't trusted. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the very first person to see it was a woman. And then here, the first people to testify is Mary and Martha. Sends them to the disciples. Go get the disciples. Go tell them what you've seen here. And this is, by the way, those who study this say, this is what makes Christianity so unique. Because if you wanted to birth a fake religion, if you wanted to claim that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead, you would never put that testimony in the hands of women in the first century. Never. Because nobody would trust them. Nobody would believe them. But God is not concerned about what everybody else thinks. God is not trying to impress you. God is trying to change you and change the world, and he'll do whatever he needs to do to make that happen. I find it fascinating that ladies were the first ones to be at the tomb that day. Not surprised necessarily. I mean, if you're sick, who's gonna be the first one to show up and care for you? I know some of you have exceptions, but by and large, it's probably going to be the women that you know in your life. Jesus showed, or the, these ladies showed up to care for Jesus' body as soon as they possibly could. But that's not all. Not only that, but in the New Testament, we also see that women such as Lydia, Phoebe, Iodia, and Syntyche, and Priscilla served as key leaders in the early church. I don't have time to unpack all of these, but let me just hit a couple of them quickly. So Lydia actually launches the church at Philippi. It meets in her home. Phoebe is such an important person because as she closes out the book of Romans, uh, Paul commends the church in Rome and says, greet you know, my servant Phoebe who's coming to you. Phoebe delivered the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. Now, we don't know that what I'm about to say is accurate. We don't know. It's possible that Phoebe is actually the one who stood up then and read the letter to the church, which means in some ways she's standing in a place like I'm standing, even though they didn't have a big room, they were in somebody's house, and read the letter from Paul to the church because that was customary. That's the way it usually went. We don't have any document that says it did, but that was customary which means something about the way that Paul sees Phoebe. Then Priscilla and Aquila here. Uh, Aquila is not mentioned because that's the husband. How about that for rhyming names, right? Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's the wife, Aquila's the husband. Priscilla and Aquila are a power couple in Paul's ministry, and they often are seen with him traveling around and doing great things. 
But what's interesting is there's only a couple times where Aquila, the husband, is named first. Most of the time, Priscilla is named first, and many scholars, myself included, though I'm not a scholar, just a pastor, uh, I think it's because Priscilla was probably the better teacher and the wiser Bible student of the two. Well, there's a young preacher, his name is Apollos, and Apollos uh, is, is just really good orator, but when Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos, he's not very good at sharing God's word. He's, he's got something wrong. We don't know exactly what that is. He's a great speaker, but he's got something wrong in his theology. And Priscilla and Aquila sit down with him and correct in him whatever it is he's got wrong. And Priscilla's name is named first in that text. And that's important because we believe then that probably it's Priscilla, the wife, who is doing the correcting of Apollos. So this tells me something about the way God views ladies in church leadership. In addition to that, when Paul writes his close of Romans chapter 16, over half of the people mentioned in that chapter are women. And he's saying, greet so-and-so, give honor to so-and-so, look out for so-and-so, say thank you to so-and-so, go read it for yourself. Because God has been doing an amazing thing in women for a very, very, very long time. I don't know where things got crazy or got off. What we want to do as a church is we want to continue to read God's word and then align our lives to what God's word says. Culture is always going to try to shift the way we look at and view God's word. We're going to always fight to bring it back to what we believe is what God's word says. It's not easy. In this topic of women in church leadership, churches land all over the map, as you can imagine. What I would say is this is what we would call a secondary doctrine. It's an important one. It's important that we have an opinion on it. It's important that we study it and come to conclusions about it. But if you disagree with me, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. It is not a salvation issue. This is not a heresy issue. You can disagree with me, be wrong all you want. It's fine. I'm totally joking. I hope that came out that way. But it is important that we as a church practice what we believe the scriptures say. We don't change the scriptures to match culture, but we don't ignore scriptures either. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God wanted to do this. Ladies, I want you to hear this. Tune in for a moment if you're tuned out. Because God desires to use you powerfully in this world. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is now dying on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and Peter stands up to preach the first sermon after that. And he says, in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now let's unpack a few things here. I don't have time to go into all the questions that this text may arise. But this phrase here, last days, Let's be very clear. The phrase last days does not refer to the last weeks, months, or years right before Jesus returns. The phrase last days refers to every day since Jesus Christ ascended into heaven until he returns. That means there are no new epics of time. The last days is right now. So I don't have time to unpack that further, but because of that, God has poured out his spirit on all of us today. What that means is when I give my life to Jesus Christ, I repent of my old life 
and say, Jesus, I need a savior to save me of my sins. When I go down into that water and I leave the old me behind and I come alive anew in Christ, we see throughout the book of Acts, people are then filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that spirit is shown out in different ways. But one of the things we know to be true is that God has now gifted you uniquely to do something in the world and in his church to bless the world and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Do you? Yeah, you can stop clap for that anytime you want. This is for men and women. Do you know why God put you here? I know this. Last week, I was at uh, Hanging Rock with our middle school students. And uh, I, I just confessed my sin for a minute, so give me some grace, right? But I sent my wife a text early in the week, and the text sounded something like this. Um, this week has only confirmed to me that um, I love our middle school students. I don't necessarily love all middle school students. <laughs> you can relate. And I'll be honest, there is a selfish part of me that you know, you're spending, literally, there's not a free moment. So, you know, your day starts at 6.30 a.m. and it ends at midnight and you're constantly correcting, rebuking, and having conversation and going, 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 and playing and helping and serving. I mean, it's all day. It's exhausting. So the second day in, I'm tired. I was tired. And then God did that thing that he always does where he creates the moment where you're using your gift. And I got to have a couple of really, really deep conversations and one night, God was just wrecking me, and I called my wife. I just needed to talk, and I love my wife because she's such a good listener. And um, I said, he did it again. And I won't go into the details because I don't have all their permission, but one story of a kid who doesn't go here. And this one kid um, who I, he'd be one of the reasons I texted, I don't love all middle schoolers, earlier in the week, but God created an opportunity for me to see back into his life. And um, his daddy's in a prison in Georgia, and uh, his mom is trying to hide. Now, what's it like to be a middle schooler? You don't know your dad, but you don't ever want to because you don't know what he's going to do to the family if he ever finds you. And um, that night when he wasn't around, because I'm not allowed to cry in front of other people, um, God started to help me to see again why he made me the way he made me. And uh, I know one of the reasons, it's not the only one, but I know one of the reasons I'm here. One of the reasons I'm here is because I love people and I wanna help connect the brokenness in people's lives to the hope and the life of Jesus Christ. And I want people to see and to know God really can redeem and restore and rebuild all things. And yes, it can take time. Yes, it is painful, but God is so good. He is so good. And I'm seeing this in the lives of middle school students and I'm calling my wife, I'm like, ah, fine. I love most middle school students here this week still. But listen, do you know why God put you here? Do you know? Because if we believe what the scriptures say, that means that we have been filled with God's presence and there's some unique gifting, talent, ability, quality, something that the Lord has given you to use in this world, to intersect evil, to bring it to a stop. There's a reason why you may be passionate about something I'm not passionate about. God might be doing something different in your life. Great, praise God. But to sit on the sideline and not act like we're in a spiritual battle while the world goes to hell makes no sense to me at all. Like be filled with the spirit. He is 
pouring it out, pouring it out on you to do something in this world to bring heaven to earth. But let's talk about this women part for a second. It says, your women will prophesy. I will pour out my spirit of these days and they will prophesy, both men and women. What does it mean to prophesy? To prophesy is to communicate a word on behalf of the Lord. It can include both foretelling and forthtelling. This is not a sermon on spiritual gifts. I do not have time for that, so I need a lot of grace. Foretelling is when I tell the future. For instance, in Acts, I believe it's chapter 21, but don't go to the next text yet because that's also Acts 21. I think it's Acts 21. Uh, Paul is on his way uh, to Jerusalem, and uh, a prophet comes out and says, Paul, the Spirit has revealed to me that if you go there, you're going to be arrested. It's gonna be bad, and you might not ever leave. And Paul says, you know, the Spirit has revealed to me that in every town I go to, that's the story. He goes anyway. And I tell you that because this prophet was led by God to warn Paul. Paul, you know if you go forward in this way, this might be the it, this might be the end. And Paul's like, yeah, I know. So he's foretelling. Here's where we are in America, though. There are a lot of people claiming to be prophets, claiming to have dreams. I don't know if you've heard about these. They're really popular on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok right around all elections. And many of their dreams do not come true. And I have a very strong opinion about false prophets. You do not get to claim to speak on behalf of God and be wrong, because God is never wrong. That's another sermon for another day, but I feel very passionately about that, that we stop giving platforms to people who are not speaking on behalf of God. I also know, and this goes to the forthtelling. Forthtelling is where I'm communicating forward a message from the Lord. Well, what happened in the early churches, it didn't look like this where people gathered in a massive room or whatever. People gathered in people's homes, right? So I told you they had five to you know, 40 people maybe in a house. And what would happen is before we had what we call the canon of the scriptures, before we had this book written down and, and codified, so to speak, the spirit would move in people and prompt them to share a word. Sometimes they'd have visions. Sometimes they'd dream dreams. Sometimes they'd say, I feel like the Lord is saying. And then there was a group of people who were responsible for discerning whether that was from the Lord. Because the Bible tells us that really there are five spirits active in the world. The first spirit is the human spirit. I have a spirit, it's just me. Then there's the angelic spirits. These are good spirits. I can't see them, but they're at work in the world. Then there's evil spirits. These are what you might call demons. They're active in the world. Then there is the, um, what you might call the spirit of this world. This would be systems and governments and cultures and powers that be. They are influenced by demonic spirits to bring about evil and manipulate things. That's why we have to constantly come back to God's word because Satan is always trying to find a way to twist it and insert something new into culture. But then the last one is the Holy Spirit. Now, it was common then for someone in the early church who had the gift of prophecy to hear a word from the Lord and to share that word. I feel like God is telling us, we need to blah, blah, blah. The Lord is you know, impressed upon me. And we learn actually from Corinthians, there's actually a school of prophets where they get together and help each other discern which of these spirits are we hearing from. 
Paul actually says, if you ever hear another gospel preached, if it comes to you from an angel or even me, Paul, if I ever come to you and share a word that is opposite of what I have told you now, ignore it. Do not listen to it. Have nothing to do with it. John tells us to test the spirits. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying simply that just because somebody shares and says, God told me, doesn't mean it's from God. But men and women had and have this gift to hear from the Lord and to share and to communicate on God's behalf. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, quit seeking after gifts like tongues and healings and all these kinds of things. Instead, everybody should seek the gift of prophecy because when you prophesy, the entire body is edified. Everybody gets better when you get in touch with God and his spirit, with his word, and you begin to learn it and discern it, and now you're sharing it. You're challenging others. You're encouraging them. You're building them up through what God is speaking to you and saying to you. Sometimes I'll read God's word, and he'll put a name in my mind, and I'm like, man, I got to call or text my brother. I don't know what's going on, and it's amazing how often it's like that. Like, how could you know? I'll get texts from people. This happened to me last week, and somebody will say, hey, God really put your name on my heart. Are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I'm at middle school camp. Would you pray for me? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Amen, right? Yeah. But that's the point. Seek this gift, men and women, to hear from the Lord and to share it. And not only that, but in Acts 21, we actually see it played out. It says, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven He had four unmarried daughters who what? Prophesied. So the early church was filled with women stepping into the presence of the Spirit in their life and sharing in what God is doing in the world. That's all the good news. We do, we do, however, as a church, recognize that there is a difference to this rule when it comes to certain very specific roles. For instance, if you go to the Old Testament, all of the priests were male. The 12 tribes of Israel were all male. In the New Testament, the 12 apostles were all male. The elders are also all male. There's a lot more to be said of this again than I have time, so I do really, I would love to sit down and, and, and just talk about it if you need help working through this. I'd love, to, I really truly would love to do that. No jokes. Somebody came up to me and said, you said you'd love to sit down and talk to people quickly about how to do this. I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. It's the quickly part. But I really would do everything I can to talk about this if you want to understand better. But let me look at one of these elder texts real quick. First Timothy chapter three, verse one says this. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, I don't have time to unpack this, but we see this word overseer, there are different words used in the New Testament to describe the same group of people, pastor, elder, overseer. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach. This word above reproach is actually a Greek word. It, says, it means no knockout punch. What that means is if, if something in their life were ever to come to the surface, whatever that is, it would not take them out. That means your elders aren't going to be perfect We are actually told how to rebuke and discipline an elder should they stumble into sin. But if there's something going on, people make mistakes, we give each other grace, we hold each other accountable, but there's nothing in their life that if it came out, like when you found out, it would ruin them and the church. They are faithful to their wife, they are temperate, they're self-controlled, they're respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Then he goes on, and I want you to notice all the he's and the him's and the his's that are here, right? He must manage his own household well. 
see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In other words, what we make of all this is that in today's church, we see all these equivalents of the eldership and the Old Testament priests and the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We see all of this coming to fruition in my role as lead pastor, also as elder at Kingsway, and the elder roles. That means at Kingsway, we want to equip and empower and train women to do everything that God has gifted and called you and empowered you to do, except for the role of elder and lead pastor. We reserve those for good, godly men who have no knockout punches in their life that are willing to and desire to lead this church. That's a mouthful right there, isn't it? But here's where all of this like rubber meets the road and we're almost done. This is a lot of information, a lot of information. But where all this meets the road is the problem is the way we view leadership today. And the lady who brought up the Proud Boys, this was her, her beef. It wasn't me. It's not what she sees in me or in our leadership. It's the way the world twists what is good. And the world has always been twisting what is good because there are evil spirits at work in this world. We want to rescue and redeem what God says is good. Even the disciples early on, before they became the apostles, they're arguing with Jesus. They want to know if they could be put on his right and on his left. Those are the two most prominent positions. They're picturing a day where Jesus will be king, and they're thinking about, can I be awesome? Can I sit in positions of power and authority one day? And Jesus' response to them in Matthew 20, 25 is this. He said, Here we go. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, what you see in the world, guys, is that people who have power and positions of leadership, they abuse their power, they hold it over others. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the whole idea behind what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be a leader in God's kingdom, put on a towel, start washing some feet. Leaders in God's kingdom don't make it about power. Leaders in God's kingdom aren't buying private jets. I'll say it. Leaders of God's kingdom are always trying to figure out how do I leverage whatever influence I have that God's position has given me for the betterment of those around me because that's what great leaders do. So if you want to lead in God's kingdom, become a great, great servant. Because Jesus taught leadership is not about power and significance. It's about serving others, loving others, and caring for others. Paul takes all of this, and I've got to be very careful that I don't open a can of worms I don't have time for. Paul takes all of this and he applies it to the home. And he says, husbands, love your wives the way that Jesus Christ loves the church. He gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a wonderful, beautiful bride, holy and blameless. I just want you to hear, when God thinks of leadership, he thinks of dying over and over and over again. Not because your spouse killed you because you're so annoying. There are probably days. But because you as the leader 
said, I'm not gonna pursue what makes me feel good. I'm not gonna pursue what makes me happy. I'm gonna give up my life. I'm gonna give up my energy. I'm gonna give up my time. I'm gonna give up my money. I'm gonna give up me so that everybody else gets better. That's what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. So if any of this has the ladies squirming in their seat and going, I don't know about all this male leadership, eldership, headship thing. Why can't we all just be equal? Just realize Jesus doesn't mean what you may have in your mind. Which brings me to the very, very, very last thing I wanna say. I like to use this analogy of a fountain. You know, the fountain draws this water from within the way we draw water from the spirit of life. And then it flows down And if there's healthy water coming out of the top, then everybody beneath that gets filled up. This is what it means to be a leader in God's church. That that I would be so filled with the spirit that those who are in my care, they're constantly getting their cups filled by what's coming out of me. This is why Jesus uses this analogy of living waters, streams of living waters bubbling up out of us. So this is where I wanna end today. I wanna encourage every single lady in this room to know that we wanna be a place that will train you, encourage you to do whatever God has called you to do in this world. We wanna come alongside you and build you up and empower you. And I don't feel like the church in general has done a very good job of this, to be honest. But we wanna be different. So, ladies, would you so boldly do a favor for me? Would you just stand? I know, I know it's weird and you hadn't planned on it, but just stand wherever you are, just stand. You know, you might even do this if you're at home. I wanna pray a prayer of boldness and blessing over you. By and large, by and large, it's women attending churches, not men, which is sad to me. And it's women who serve at churches and not men. And that also is sad to me. It's not always true. But across America, it's true. There are countries, ladies, where the husband who's the pastor is arrested and thrown in prison and the church can either die or not. And so many times the wife of the pastor steps up and leads the church because there's nobody else to do it. Ladies, God has gifted you. He's called you. He's qualified you. Step into it. This world is a dark and evil place, and there are men who abuse their their power, their strength, to hurt women all the time. You can do something about it. I know you can. I believe in you. Maybe you do it here in your home or in your community, your school, or here in this church, or maybe you join an organization and you do it around the world, but by all means, you have the Spirit of God living inside you. And I wanna pray that that spirit of God stirs in you right now. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray over these ladies right now. I pray that they would feel emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because of my words, not because I get loud or passionate in my sermon, but because you, you have filled them, you with your spirit. You love them. You care about them. God, you have called them and gifted them. You've called them to be teachers and administrators, and doctors, and nurses. You've called them to be business owners, and realtors. You've called them to be accountants, and assistants. You've called them to lead worship for us. You've called them to teach. You've called them to do so many things, and you've gifted them by the power of the Holy Spirit that is within them. So God, I pray over them. 
as they try to figure out how to walk in step with you, to be bold, not to shrink back, not to be afraid, but to stand firmly in who you have made them to be, to do what you have called them to do in the world, to hear from you and to bring a message from you to this world through their lives, through their words, through what they do with their hands. God, when evil men and evil women try to put obstacles in their way so that they can't fulfill what you've placed in their heart to do, God, I pray that you give them boldness to pray their way through that, not to shrink back, but to get on their knees and lift up their hands and cry out to heaven for more power and more strength and more boldness to do what you've called them to do in this world. I pray you give them wisdom to love and to serve their families well. For those who are married and have children, to figure out what it means to follow and support and encourage their husband and his leadership, but also to step into who you've called them to be in this world. For those who are single or divorced or widowed, God, and they feel like maybe they aren't yet all that they could be or they, they aren't what they once were and they just don't feel as good, God, they have your spirit alive and active in them. There's so many examples in the scriptures of women whose lives were radically changed and they spend their lives seeking your face and fasting and praying and bringing good into the world. God, I pray for those women right now, embolden them by the power of the spirit to live in step with you, to do what is pleasing to you and to let go of the worries and the cares and the fears and the concerns of this world. And God, whatever chain is holding back the ladies in this room, we pray that it is broken in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. 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 You may sit, ladies. You may sit. So uh, we're going to wrap up our service now. And I'm just going to ask that, um, that you go back and invite a friend. Next week, we're going to kick off a series about leadership for a few weeks. And then we're going to talk about Songs of Solomon and really talk about relationships. And uh, man, that'd be a perfect next three months to just invite somebody to come and meet Jesus before we go back and talk more about what God's doing in the book of Luke. And uh, I love you. If you want to talk, I will make my way out here and I will chat with you. Also, our Connect team will be down on the sides. If you just want to pray with somebody, maybe something struck you interesting today in one way or another, just come up to somebody on our Connect team and say, would you just pray with me? You can tell them as much as you want to tell them. We love you. We praise you. God bless you. We'll see you next week.